Lynn Lowry here uh, with The Glenn Show at Substack.com and at YouTube, my YouTube channel, Glenn Lowry Show. Uh, and I'm happy uh, to welcome Brianna Joy Gray to The Glenn Show. Brianna is hostess of um, the Bad Faith podcast, which my wife loves. And I do too, actually, <laughs> although I don't love it as much as my wife does. As uh, a graduate of Harvard Law School, is a former national press secretary for the Bernard Sanders campaign and is a woman of the left. I think I could say that without embarrassing Absolutely. her. Absolutely. Uh, so welcome, welcome. I almost want to say welcome back, except you had me as a guest on your podcast. I did, and it was one of our most popular episodes to date. I'm glad to hear that. <laughs> and I reposted it at the Glenn Show, I don't know, six months, eight, nine months ago, something mm -hmm. like that, less than a year ago. And it got uh, a lot of traffic. Mm. Uh, I'll bet the comments that you received are different from the comments that I received. How so? What do you think I received? Well, some of my comments, well, I bet your comments, well, how dare you, uh, why were you talking to that guy? I mean, <laughs> you know, he's beneath contempt. He's a conservative. No, that's not my audience. I think that there are a lot of liberals like that. But I, I, there's a pretty significant cultural distinction between liberals and the left. And because the left are so is so erased from the public sphere, a lot of folks don't even really realize what we're all about. Uh, so the left, I think, is very much aligned with a lot of folks who identify as politically independent or perhaps conservative that are concerned with a lot of issues about censorship. They are similarly amused by the hand-wringing around Elon Musk uh, potentially buying Twitter. They, you know, are concerned about censorship because it's often left-wing uh, uh, sites that are censored first in the first culling. So people were very concerned about Chris Hedges and Abby Martin and some RT shows being taken down in the RT sweep um, yeah. and all of that. So there's a lot of alignment there because any quote unquote fringe ideology is going to be the first one, are going to be the first ones hit. Okay. Now I like this idea of Brianna and I are talking because we have our political differences, but we also have a common commitment to the value of discourse and to the integrity of journalism. I think we do. I think so. That feels uh, right. So the left and the right, and I'm not saying I'm a person of the right. I'm, I'm heterodox. <laughs> I mean, I'm conservative for a black guy. Okay. I mean, I'm an <laughs> economist by profession. So that's going to make me a little bit, uh, you know, kind of neoliberal on certain stuff, prices and, you know, open markets and things of this kind. But uh, I don't know. I don't like the idea of me being a man of the right. I mean, that kind of rubs me the wrong way. But in any case, we're talking, and I think that's the thing. You know? Do you and think you're conservative for? Do you think that black people aren't conservative? I was mooting this earlier today because a man on the plane with me was wearing a, a sweatshirt, a black guy that said um, uh, "black capitalist," and I was sharing. I like, took a quick snap, and I was sharing it with some of my friends on a text thread, and some of the non-black people on the thread were confused by it. And they're like, what is the deal with this shirt? I was like, no, this is a common strain of, you know, a common way of thinking among black people who are like very invested in the system and are very proud of kind of land accumulation, property accumulation, you know, playing the game as it is and not feeling like you have to reform anything to succeed. I think it's complicated. You're making me remember my Uncle Mooney. Mm. Now, I grew up in the 50s and 60s in Chicago. So Uncle Mooney grew up in the 30s and the 40s in Chicago. And by the time I met him, he was in his 40s. He was a hustler. So, and I don't mean illegal. I mean, a guy that made money as every way he could find out to make money, buying and selling stuff. He kept a shop, a barber shop, um, and kept three or four barbers in there. And, mm. you know, he would, you know, probably sell those stuff out the back door that might have fallen off somebody's truck somewhere <laughs> or something like that. It might have a little grass in there if somebody was, you know, 
But Uncle Mooney used to say, I tell you what, you call me when they start integrating the money. Mm. You know, the, mm-hmm. he was about integrating the money. And, uh, you know, he was a small business, uh, uh, storekeeping, uh, you know, hardworking, uh, hardworking guy. Now, I, I think, and, and you say believe in the system. Well, I don't know if he believed in the system. I mean, he was a deep admirer of Malcolm mm. X. He liked the straight back, defiant, uh, independent, uh, self-reliant, uh, manly, if I may say so. He did uh, stance. Uh, you know, he's, he wasn't bound and scraping mm. Malcolm. He wasn't, you know, asking for anything except get out of my way while I take care of my own business, protect my family, build my life, mm-hmm. and, et cetera. So, yeah, that was, that was Uncle Mooney. And I think, there's, I think that's pretty commonplace in, um, in African-American uh, history and culture. I was reflecting yeah. on how popular um, Ben Carson was before he ran for president among black and that people, story. generally speaking. Yeah. What do you call it? Healing hands or gifted yeah, hands? Yeah, gifted hands. Yeah. yeah. And how there's a certain among, you know, I think about my other kind of black, the black middle-class families that I grew up with, the Jack and Jill set were very invested. We weren't in Jack and Jill, just to be clear, but in the neighborhood, there were only so many black families when I was a little kid in North Carolina. And many of them grew up to be doctors. Many of them grew up to be doctors who really admired Ben Carson until his politics became more explicitly foregrounded. And there was this feeling of, even if you don't like the system, and a, a pride in having navigated it so successfully and achieved despite the odds. And therefore, an almost tacit investment in it that comes out of that, that says, well, if I was able to do it, other people will be able to do it, which is, a, frankly, a, a rather, and I mean this not judgmentally, but just, you know, as an observation, conservative kind of ideology, you know? And even the people individually aren't conservative, even if they vote Democrat, even if they express, uh, you know, shared views with someone like me on, on a lot of metrics, they, when I start talking about the kinds of policies that would substantially reform the system that they've succeeded in, those are some of the biggest fights I've had as a leftist, is other like black bourgeois people, my former classmates, people who have mortgages, people who have paid off their student debt. Those are the biggest fights. And I think it is because even though they would hate to admit it and they would say they love Malcolm and they, they would see themselves as revolutionaries by like doing the DEI work at their law firms or whatever. They have succeeded in the status quo and they're afraid of what comes next, which is, I think, an understandable, relatable feeling. I don't know what comes next. I've also succeeded under the status quo. Oh, no, I find this very interesting. I mean, you have you ever been to a historically black college? Yeah, both my parents graduated from Howard. Have you passed a sorority? We didn't have um, fraternities and sororities at at Harvard. Harvard. (laughs) Uh, Well, I can tell you, and I better tell you because my daughter, Lisa, might hear this podcast at some point, (laughs) who sent her two sons through Jack and Jill and was very proud of it. And I went to cotillions and botillions. I love you, Lisa. I love you, Jeremy. And I love you, William. (laughs) Uh, And uh, I, you know... Let's see, how, am I, how do I want to put this exactly? <laughs> the status thing, the feeling that there's a line of separation between us and uh, let's just say black people who haven't done as well as us. The, the Chris Rock skit. 
we want to have suitable peers mm. for our kids. We, we want them to be around people like, like us. That is, we're getting ahead in life. There's not a touch of irony or sarcasm in what I'm saying here. I mean, this is literally mm-hmm. what my beloved offspring, uh, you know, my grandchildren who I went to the botillion and I, you know, and I listened to the, and, you know, have the formal dress and, the, and all of that stuff. And, you know, after a couple of drinks, I was heard to say, <laughs> have y'all read uh, E. Franklin Frazier? Black bourgeoisie, mm-hmm. you know, and this kind of faux, the mm-hmm. faux thing where, you know, the white folks have their real thing and we have our faux thing. And what we're really doing is we're marking the differentiation between ourselves and uh, Negroes. And that's how they would have put it. Don't get mad at me. <laughs> who, haven't done as, who haven't done as well as us, who are, are not about success in the same way that we are and uh, so forth. So, yeah. Um, but it doesn't, maybe it doesn't rub me the wrong way quite as much as it, it does you because I don't have a revolutionary uh, manifesto behind me that mm-hmm. I want to recruit these folks to what I see, uh, frankly, and I'm not talking about my family now anymore. I'm just talking about the general cadre of people who are doing this. Is uh, It's a great country. It's an open country. Uh, there's a lot of possibility in life and, and people are, are grasping at the opportunity and, they, and they're making the best of it for themselves and their children. Yeah, I, And what's wrong with that? I think, you know, I grew up overseas and I think consequently have a little bit of a different attitude toward America than some of my peers on the left and broadly. So I, I agree. It's, I, I want to live here, maybe not always and forever, but I, I think America is a great country. I think there's a lot of opportunities here. There's a reason why a lot of people do want to immigrate here. It's the wealthiest country in the world. Bernie liked to say in the history of the world, I'm not quite sure how he gets those numbers, but hey, let's go with it. And that's <laughs> obviously true. It's also true that the people who founded this country came here on a mission to improve upon their own status quo. And I like to think that one of the best things about America is the idea that we can continue to be more perfect. You know, it's the, the that little, was Obama. The, that was Obama's lift, you know, his, his, his little uh, um, quote that he pulled. And I think it's, it's a useful formulation because I do think sometimes people on the left and people on the right, they get into this struggle bus where people on the left feel like people on the right saying America is good, America is great, America is appealing to all these people, is a denial of the things that could be improved on and is a kind of way of shifting responsibility away from addressing that, yeah, but couldn't we be better? And yeah, 68,000 people die every year from a lack of health insurance. Couldn't we figure out a better system? They seem to have one, a better one. You know, that this doesn't happen in other similarly developed countries. You know, people, the average American, the average uh, student debt burden of 44 million Americans is $30,000. Like, is there a better way to figure out how to rig the system, design the system to have better outcomes? And I would like us to be in the space sometimes more of agreeing that, of course, we can improve instead of having kind of like a fist, a chest, chest thumping match about who thinks America is good or bad, you know? Okay, I can agree with that. I mean, and I think we can improve. And I think some of the battle, and that's what we're talking about here, we're both black intellectuals and journalists addressing ourselves to public affairs issues from relatively different perspectives. I'm more to the right than Brianna, everybody. <laughs> uh, You're trying but, to preemptively distance yourself. But we can agree that it's a great country with great opportunity, and we can also agree that it's not a perfect country. It's a country that could be improved. And then it gets down to cases. And then we're talking about what are the taxes? How do you regulate corporations? What do you do about climate mitigation? 
what is the inequality problem and how do you address it? How do you fix the schools if the schools need fixing? What do you do about crime and maintenance of order in the cities and things of that kind? How much funding for education at what level and how? How do you hold teachers accountable if you're going to hold them accountable, et cetera? Uh, and there are different schools of thought about those matters. I mean, collectivism, a worry about overdoing the social welfare state such that you kill incentives and kill off initiative, uh, a sense of adherence to certain principles about uh, individualism and the autonomy of people and things of this kind, you know, limited government. This is a basic idea, limited government. How big should the state be? Should it be 40% of GDP, 70% of GDP, 90% of GDP, et cetera? Uh, not to get into foreign policy and all of that, which is a whole other kettle of fish, but there could be differences about how to make it better. Most certainly. I don't, is there one of those that you would prefer to start with first, get into first? I mean, we can get to a laundry list, but I wanted to talk more generally about left and right, because you made a point that I thought was really interesting, which is that people at the, a little bit off of the main beat, uh, have a sometimes have a trouble trouble getting their voices heard and worry about mm-hmm. getting marginalized. For example, the Democratic Party did your man dirt. They really did dog him out. I Correct. mean, you know, <laughs> and it's still going. Have you heard about this latest with Senator Anita Turner in the Ohio's 11th district race? Uh, well, if I didn't know who Anita Turner was, my wife would divorce me. I mean, <laughs> Nina Turner, Nina Turner. If I did not know who she was, my wife would divorce me. She's had her eye on her for years. But tell yeah, us about her. Yeah, the Democratic Party is no friend to the left. So as you mentioned, they were roundly unfair to Bernie Sanders, both in 2016 and 2020. Um, this is not leftist conspiracy to say that when he won the first three primaries, which some people will dispute, you're one of the 10 people in America that was a vociferous supporter of Pete Buttigieg. But after he won the first three primaries, including Nevada, which is a diverse state in which he won 70% of the Latino population, there was a uh, mass dropout of all the other candidates. Obama is reported to have picked up the phone and called everybody to say, let's drop out. Let's rally behind uh, Joe Biden and let's do this. And you had people like Soledad O'Brien saying, you know, oh, he won Nevada. No big deal. Let's see when he wins a diverse state. As though the Latinos don't live there, don't matter. It's a little bizarre her being Afro-Latina herself. But that's the kind of framework we were in. They tried to red scare Bernie uh, right after Nevada because they got so frightened and said that Putin was helping him win the election. All of this stuff, it gets memory hold, but all of this stuff happened, right? Okay, there was the whole Elizabeth Warren shivving, all of that happened. But it, it goes on. So something happened this week that has caused a lot of leftists to say, this is it, we're done with the Democratic Party altogether. I personally don't identify as a Democrat. Uh, Bernie Sanders was an independent and that mattered to me. Um, But Senator Turner, who was one of Bernie Sanders' four campaign co-chairs, ran last August, last year, to take, replace uh, Marsha Fudge's seat in uh, the district that's basically Cleveland, Ohio. Marsha Fudge uh, joined the Obama administration and left a midterm vacancy. In that race, Senator Turner, she was, we call her Senator Turner because she was a state uh, senator um, some years back. She has a long history in the district, very well liked in the district, was a professor at Cuyahoga Community College, a graduate of that college, has a real personal hard knock story that a lot of people relate to. She was ahead of the polls. Everything was going along swimmingly. When the, her opponent, which seems to have been just kind of picked from the ether by the Democratic Party, you're hard-pressed to find her speaking anywhere on the internet, saying anything, believing anything, has no real identity before any of this. 
uh, gets a huge influx of money that catches her up to Nina Turner, who'd been leading in fundraising up until that point from a variety of groups that historically donate to Republican candidates. No progressive allies here. And in the final stretch gets endorsements from all the favorite, favorite Democrats there are, people like Jim Clyburn and Hillary Clinton. And she narrowly squeaks out a victory over Nina Turner. Now, Nina Turner's running again because it was a special election. Now there's the real election this year. It's coming up, I think, on May 3rd. Okay. The Congressional Progressive Caucus, the Congressional Progressive Caucus, led by Pramila Jayapal, who was for Bernie Sanders, most of the, you know, all of the squad members and the CPC for Bernie Sanders, Bernie Sanders circuits, all of that. Ro Khanna was another co-chair, CPC. They just endorsed Chantel Brown, Nina Turner's opponent over Nina Turner. Now, Chantel Brown wasn't even a member of the CPC until they grandfathered it in like a month ago just to validate now, it seems in retrospect, the choice for them doing so. Chantel Brown didn't believe in $15 minimum wage, Medicare for all, any of this stuff Okay, last she was year. a Congressional Black Caucus, but not-, uh, she not was, I mean, she wasn't in, she wasn't in Congress in, before she, was, oh, she, you know, won. Oh, but she was not a member of the- Right, but she is a member of another caucus group that whose name escapes me right now that is like antithetical ideologically to the CPC, like a, the business- Round t- something that's like the con- a conservative kind of business-minded caucus. And people are like, she's how can you be? She's a Democrat. Okay. She's a Democrat. She's an electable Democrat. Well, anybody in Cleveland is electable. It's a blue city. It's a blue district. That's not the issue. They can't claim electability. What accounts for the antipathy to Nina Turner's candidacy in she's the mainstream Democratic Party? She's a progressive. Well, and she's why are outs- they against progressives? Well, she's outspoken against the failures of the Democratic Party. She's outspoken against the failures of Joe Biden because she's advocating sincerely for the interests of working people, non-ideologically working people. So people listen to my podcast have heard me say this a million times before, but I can chart to you a series of events that demonstrates that Joe Biden had no investment actually in passing a $15 minimum wage. And in fact, Pramila Jayapal advocated for progressives to stand down in the fight to get the $15 minimum wage included in the COVID relief bill last year. There is one party... The reason why I feel such ideological kinship to so many people across the spectrum is because there are, my first and foremost sense of identity is with those people who have identified that there's a, there's a one-party system that's rooted in neoliberalism and maintaining a corporatized status quo that makes life very, very difficult for the majority of people living in this country. We live in the richest country in the world, and 40% of Americans could not respond to a $400 emergency. Really think about what that means. A $400 emergency, people couldn't come up with 400 bucks. 40% of the country, that was a stat from before the pandemic. God knows what it is now. And we have uh, the longest period in American history without raising the minimum wage. It hasn't been raised since Bush. And we're fighting over what exactly? You turn on the CNN or Tucker Carlson, they're all talking about the same dumb stuff distracting us from these substantive issues that should be uniting us all, you know? Okay, I mean, you're, in a way, you're not answering my question. I want to know why is it that the party, the Democratic Party, which is the relative left party in the mainstream American mm-hmm. politics, is against these progressive ideas? They're not for the $15 no. minimum wage, or are they afraid they're going to lose some close elections if they no. don't uh, hew to the center? That's because Joe Biden took more money. By the way, I'm not for the $15 minimum wage. I, I should, <laughs> we can talk about that. I should declare that and we should talk about it. But anyway. But I'm, Joe, yeah. It's because Joe Biden took more money. It's money. From billionaires and corporate donors than anybody else in the huge Democratic primary field. To what, 26 candidates or whatever it was. Okay. And money talks. 
And I think normal people get that. Normal people don't think that people are giving away money for free. There's no free lunch, right? And Joe Biden admitted this in this kind of fabulous clip of him saying, well, of course, if you give me $20,000 and you, and you call me, I'm going to pick up your call first before other people's. And he's, I appreciate the honesty. Okay, so what would be wrong with this? And this is not a partisan critique. This is more like a pragmatic assessment. Mm-hmm. Okay, so like applying game theory to the political scene, you know, mm-hmm. how can you win? So, you know, probably about the median voter theorem, you know, in political science, mm-hmm. there's this idea that the parties tend to move into the center because if I'm on the left and you're on the right, or better, I'm on the right and you're on the left. <laughs> if I move in your direction, I'll get half of the people in between the two of us and that'll expand my thing. And mm-hmm. you want to move toward me to catch that marginal person. And we up, end up in the middle. Um, and the money kind of ends up in the middle too, because they're trying to buy both sides. They're trying to influence the people who are going to be the decision makers. It swings back and forth, the committee chairs and the, you know, this and the, that. Um, and if you're on the, the fringe of that, and, and you want to change it, just decrying the fact that most of the political weight is in the center because, you know, water runs downhill because the center is the place where you get the most votes. The center is how you win close elections. Decrying that sounds like a, a almost like a grandstanding move. I mean, the insiders are going to say, OK, help me get control of the majority in Congress. So Tell I, me how I'm going to do that. I would agree with you if either party were aiming for the center. You would agree if? If either party were aiming for the center, or not the center, but the majority of voters, where the uh, bulk of voters are. But that is not the case. There is this 2014 Princeton study, which gets cited a lot, for the proposition that there is absolutely no connection, like nil, none, zero, zip, no connection between me desires of the electorate and what gets enacted in Congress. There's no, like if you see a graph of what the preferences are and what the bulk of people want here and there and other way, there's no relationship between that and what legislation actually gets passed. And that is because to win elections, to, to get the number of voters needs to turn out, it's not about convincing and persuading anybody anymore. It's about how much you can spend on these races and how much you can protect incumbents, which is why the Democratic Party is... So old, which is not a problem if you're with it and happening and you're actually representing the interests of your constituents, but it is a problem when you're being grandfathered in and protected by a party so that they never have to be responsive to their constituents. And we have instances like Dianne Feinstein, who it's being reported on this week, is like wandering around and bumping into walls. No disrespect. I mean, no disrespect, but she has an uh, obligation. Yes. And there, were report, there was reporting of her not being cognitively there before the last election. The woman, I think she was 80, 84 during her last run. And I, you know, I think, I, I know Bernie. I've talked to, you know, I obviously spent some time with Bernie. There's no cognitive deficit there. And Noam, Noam Chomsky is still kicking it, doing great at 94. This is, not, this is not about ageism. Yeah. This is about being so invested in protecting a status quo that you'll let someone who's obviously suffering from symptoms of dementia, continue to run multiple new re-election races in, in that condition. So I've, I've gone a little astray. The point is, so let me give you an example of how they're not aiming for the middle. When it became clear that working people who were the traditional um, base of the Democratic Party, unions, laborers, assembly line people, this kind of a thing, coming out of the New Deal, that's how what happened. The FDR, people loved him. It would have made him a dictator if he hadn't died and they had to change term limits after him, right? Um, gave us all the social safety net. After the depression, everybody was 
obviously in dire straits, set up the basic infrastructure of contemporary American life, set a um, minimum wage, certain hours a week, outlaw sending little kids into fire pits to mine for coal. I don't know, whatever. Did all of those things. Social security, extremely still the most popular program in America, social security, Medicare, Medicaid. Uh, and unions then became huge fans of Democrats. They were Democrats because he set up the National Labor Relations Board and protected right. all of these labor rights. At some point, Democrats were losing and decided to go neoliberal, to throw all of that in the way and say, we're not going to aim for that voter. What we can do is do what Republicans have been doing for some years now, use this newfounded thing called the television to influence people through ads. And we know that a certain amount of funding dollars translates into a certain amount of ad dollars and can influence the public in a way that we don't need the support of all of these other people. And if both parties have abandoned unions, well, the unions just have to deal with it and go with the better of the two parties, which is still the Democrats, and we still maintain power. So you get people like, um, I think it was Chuck Schumer who said, for every Democrat, every working class Democrat we lose in 2016, we'll pick up some soccer mom in, in Connecticut. And there's this idea that by targeting more affluent people, both, both parties are going to do this, targeting more affluent people who are guaranteed voters because rich people vote and poor people don't, that they can still maintain a status quo. And that's what's been going on. And that's how you get a scenario where even though a $15 minimum wage was on the ballot in Florida and Trump won Florida, the $15 minimum wage won with 60% of the vote in deep red Florida, 60% of the vote as a ballot initiative. Okay, these are popular programs. Or populist. They are populist programs. I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a left populist, absolutely. And I think it's a disaster and so short-sighted of Democrats yeah. to leave populism to, you know, the likes of Tucker Carlson, who I don't th- think has a good faith investment in it. Okay. So do you think Bernie could have won if he had been nominated in 2016 oh, or in 2020? Polls in 2016 showed that he was the most electable against Donald Trump. Hillary Clinton had an unprecedented level of um, uh, unfavorables in the race. Hillary Clinton, they all knew this and said it was more important to elect Hillary Clinton than to actually beat Donald Trump, who they claimed was this existential threat, yada, yada, yada. Moreover, Hillary Clinton, the um, Podesta leak demonstrated to us in the emails, intentionally elevated Donald Trump as a Pied Piper candidate because she and all of her hubris believed that she was the best, uh, that he was the best, easiest person for her to beat. Right. So this this entire thing is a creation of the Democratic Party. The, the entire Trump phenomenon was a creation of the Democratic Party. So let me see if I'm following you. The genuine left um, socialist agenda could be endorsed by the American electorate if only the Democrats would get the F out of the way. I've just encountered a new shaving system and it's terrific. It's called Harry's. Now's the time to dump your old expensive shaving routine and try Harry's. The price is right and the quality is outstanding. Harry's is a newcomer to the scene, an underdog. Betting on the underdog can pay off big, especially with a company like Harry's that teams up the best quality and construction methods in the razor game with incredibly fair pricing. It feels terrific to support an up-and-coming company, especially when the product is so good. New customers can redeem a Harry's trial set for just $3 
when you go to harrys.com forward slash Glenn. Harry's believes you shouldn't have to choose between a close, comfortable shave and a fair price, so they give you both. In fact, Harry's blades are designed to stay sharp longer. In a recent study, guys who shave four times a week said that their eighth shave was as smooth as their first. That's a better experience with every shave and savings over time. Harry's is giving their best offer to my listeners. New Harry's customers can redeem a starter set. You get five blade razor, a weighted handle, foaming shave gel, and a travel cover to protect your blades when you're going on the road. That's a $13 value and it's available for just $3. There's truly never been a better time to try Harry's. Go to harrys.com forward slash Glenn to try Harry's today. Yeah, look, obviously there are probably some, there are some issues that don't pull as well as others, but the issues that their left is running on and foregrounding, Medicare for all, 88% of Democrats, 49% of Republicans support. That's a clear majority of the electorate. A $15 minimum wage over, I don't remember the number offhand, but overwhelming majorities as evidenced by the fact that Republicans in Florida love it. There might be some arguments about what that wage point should be, but in Florida, a 15 passed. So I'm very confident about how popular 15 is throughout the rest of the country. Um, Joe Biden right now is hatching some scheme to um, attack Medicaid after running, by the way, on a public option, which has completely disappeared off of the public agenda, Right extremely popular. We know how much Medicaid, Medicare expansion is enormously popular. Bernie wanted to expand it to include hearing, vision, and dental. These are easy peasy issues to run on. Well, if you tell people that you're going to give them free stuff, they say, sure, I like that stuff. I mean... Yes, because they need it. <laughs> uh, they need but it. it's not free. Nothing is free. No, you, you tax the rich for it. So, you, so, no, you tax the middle class for it. I mean, you can tax the rich no. 100% and you're not going to have enough to pay for Medicare for all. The two corporate parties tend to tax the middle class for things because they're the rich and they don't want to tax the rich. You have, why do we have these conversations in a country where it's, why, why should it be unpopular to have a wealth tax on the top, like 1% of 1% of Americans? Why, that should be a no-brainer. If we live in a real democracy and you have millionaires and billionaires, I think, I think billionaires increase their wealth by 30% in the context of this depressionary event we just went through, they increased their wealth by 30%. And we can't get a basic wealth tax. Elon Musk is saying casually, let's, let's spend $40 billion to buy Twitter on a lark. And that doesn't even put a dent in his earnings. He's, he's increased his earnings by, I think, more than $40 billion in the context of the pandemic. He's not entitled to become rich. Oh, he's entitled to become did he, rich. Did he he's do not something entitled. wrong to get the money? Now, if he did something well, he wrong, did. take the money away. What well, did he do? Well, Let's take Marxism, the money from him. My friend. He rigged the market. Well, that's against the law. Well, he, I mean, that people, some people think that is why he wants Twitter because you can inflate stock prices by controlling what the press is about a certain event. I don't know enough about that to comment. Okay. I mean, but, neither but I'm, do I'm I. I'm just saying this idea of millionaires and billionaires. I mean, I hear it a lot. So where do you think I the money comes from? I hear it over breakfast in the morning. Where do you think where do you think the money comes well, from? Well, I mean, people are in, in business. 30%? They're doing various things. Their investments uh, pay off, and so forth and so. They're not robbing people. They're not stealing it. Capitalism and, is theft. That's that's a kind yes. of passe. Uh, I don't. I no, don't think I'm, it's I'm not persuaded of that. Okay. Maybe I mean, we in talk fact, about it, I think that's the idea that'll leave us all in poverty at the end of the day. There won't be any reason for anybody to do anything as soon as they stick their head up above 
ground, it'll get chopped off by the levelers. So you said his investments are doing well. What if I never have enough money to have an investment? Why, yeah. why does it, so he started his company, his, his, I think his people were diamond miner, miners or something kind of horrible in South Africa. That's where his family money comes from, right? And he, just like Donald Trump and a lot of other folks, got their small million dollar investment from their parents and made it into a lot more money than that, for sure. But I, I don't know about you, but I didn't get a million dollars. There's no million dollar investment coming my way. No, life is not fair. I agree. I agree. Some people are born with nothing and they have a tough road to hold. Some people get a head start. I agree. So his parents who got their money by living in an apartheid system and exploiting, literally exploiting. I mean, that's, I mean, that's South Africa, man. I'm not making that yeah, up. No, I- <laughs> it's not ancient history. It's like the 80s. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Exploiting people. They get money. He's able to invest it and he's able to be multi-billionaire, the richest man on earth or whatever. I'm just trying to understand and why you, that's And you earned. want to confiscate his wealth because, because think, his parents were South Africans? No, I, mean, I, want to, I, want to confiscate, I don't want to confiscate, confiscate his wealth. For one, I think that there's an amount of money. I think I'm not going to waste any tears. There's no, literally zero impact on Elon Musk's ability to do anything or buy anything in the entire world that comes from me taxing him at a higher tax rate. It's his money. I actually don't. The, the state's going to come in and decide. Do, are you against taxes altogether? Hmm? Are you against taxes altogether? Oh, no, no. no okay, I'm so not. we believe in the principle that the state should be able to take some of everybody's money in order to make yeah, sure the state is well right. run but and now social we're services about millionaires and billionaires. We're singling out people who've been extraordinarily successful. No. And we're socializing their property, in effect. They go out, they buy the company. The company goes up in value 10 times because they were lucky or they were shrewd or both. Now they're sitting on a pile of money and we decide, oh, you're rich. You've got so much. Let's, you well, know, because ask- there are people in the, in the world sure. who don't have enough to eat. And I'm saying that idea, when it gets uh, embedded into government, into the power of law and into the instruments of, uh, in effect, confiscation, will kill the golden goose that's making us all prosperous by uh, drying up the incentives of people to, to go out and do things. And, I, have, I have two questions. Yeah. If I make $50,000 a year and I pay thirty in taxes. Yeah. Should Elon Musk, who makes $200 billion a year, I'm sorry, I don't actually know the number, but I think it's something around there. $2 billion. Should he also have to pay the 30% in taxes? Um, I'm going to have to say not necessarily because we're, we're talking because about way, labor income is taxed differently from well, let's just pretend, let's just pretend it's, so it's the same. Let's just pretend he earns a salary of $200 billion a year just for the simplicity of this. If I earn $50,000 a year, we all understand that I, out of that, I have to have food, shelter, pay for childcare, baby pay for education. All of those kinds of things come out of that pot. And there's like a base standard of living. My Maslow's hierarchy of needs have to be met. Yes. Within that sum. I would put to you that there's a certain amount of money over which I think Elon Musk hierarchy of needs are more than enough taken care of. And I don't know what number you would put it at. Maybe it's at a billion. Maybe it's at 10 billion. Maybe it's at 40 you billion. You just decided how much he's gonna, he should be having. No, with. I didn't. I said whatever number you would put it at. But I would put to you that most and, human and beings would agree. if I have more agree, than what you decide that I need or what anybody decides that I need, then the state should be able to come in and take it. No, the, the state should be able to tax you. Just like it does now. The state has already decided that. The okay. state, people who make what is it, less than 20,000? There's a number under which people don't get taxed. They've already, I'm not reinventing yeah, I mean, the wheel. This is already true. Most taxes are paid true. by a relative few of taxpayers. Well, because 
most people can barely afford a $400 emergency. It's not because they're slackers. It's because they're poor. Let let me agree with you that we could tax the rich more and that it would be a fair fair system. (laughs) I'm I'm just playing devil's advocate here a little bit. Um, But, uh, okay. What would you do um, about the American welfare state? You say Medicare for all. Yes. They're going to take away my private insurance. I'm going to, if you want to buy private insurance, that's, you're right. If you want to go to another country and get some specialty thing, or if you want something that's not covered by Medicare, like a cosmetic procedure, you can buy that as well. uh, One sixth of the American economy. Yes. Much like every other industrialized country in the world has done. Because right now we are paying twice as much, almost twice as much for our healthcare costs for some of the most substandard healthcare in the industrialized world. And it is curious to me why people are so interested in defending a system that other countries look at and are aghast by. Our child mortality rates, particularly among Black people, are comparable to some countries where, you know, you know what our, our, our old president used to call them. Countries that are not at all developed where people are suffering a great deal. Okay, help me understand how Medicare for all would make our healthcare system a better system. Yeah, so... As we mentioned before, Medicare is already the most popular social program this in the United States. This is for seniors. So seniors right now, if you're over 65, you get healthcare. If you, right now, we don't have a healthcare system. We have a health insurance system. And I think it's really important to internalize the difference. Right now, we all pay insurance premiums, depending on what you got, hundreds of dollars a month. If you have a family, thousands, it's a lot of money. So that if we get sick, We still pay more because we have deductibles we have to hit. So you have to spend a certain amount of money. My old plan, I had to hit $7,000 before any of my needs would be covered. And I also have to pay co-pays. So a percentage of the medicines that I'm actually being prescribed. And some of those co-pays are extremely expensive, including for life-saving, life-sustaining drugs like insulin, which has been really foregrounded in the context of this whole debate about the ethics of healthcare. Because just in Canada, as Bernie likes to say, 70 miles to my north, there is, I I can get insulin for one-tenth of the price that it's sold in America, right? And that is because we have a for-profit healthcare system where all of that money we're all funneling in and not even getting anything out, we still have to pay when we get hurt, is going to insurance providers whose only job is to hire a bunch of lawyers and come up with ways not to have to pay us when we actually get sick. So when you or your loved one, God forbid, um, gets cancer or some other horribly expensive illness, instead of being concerned with their care and their bedside and like getting their affairs in order, you're on the phone with insurance companies at the worst moments in your life trying to argue with them about life-sustaining care. I know. And 50% of bankruptcies in this country, by the way, are medical bankruptcies. Half the reason that most people go bankrupt in this country or half of people go bankrupt. Sorry, I messed up that stat. Sorry. 50% 50% of people who get cancer go bankrupt. Go back. Yeah, That's I was, the stat. I was say Sorry, years. 50% of uh, people who who's, are in a family where someone gets cancer go, goes bankrupt. That's unconscionable. I think that's morally unconscionable. What, so that Aetna can make money? Why don't we have this uh, already then if it's so great? That's an excellent question. <laughs> I'm so that's glad That's such I an asked. important question. <laughs> so there is a really great article. I think actually Van Newkirk, who used to be at The Atlantic, I haven't heard from him in a few years actually, but he wrote this great article about the history of, um, the. It ha- there's a lot of background with the, how hospitals got integrated and the system got set up in the, in the New Deal era. But the, the real 
The bottom line is it's the uh, physicians who have always lobbied against it. It's the American Medical Association that has always lobbied against it because of their own personal financial interests. And now it's a combination of, it's a combination of, um, I mean, you work in an institution, an elite institution, you know, there's a certain degree of gatekeeping that happens in these institutions to keep them elite, private, and well-funded. So for instance, a lot of the argument against uh, making public colleges and universities free is that it would really hurt private institutions, right? I don't know that I go and spend $40,000, that's what it was back then, at Har- a year at Harvard, if there are quality public education, quality public schools that are actually free, that where they used to be before integration happened and Ronald Reagan <laughs> and the California system said, no, we're not doing this anymore and defunded the public education system. I, I'm not making making this up. This is, we used to have a robust public education system that people were very proud of before it became, these colleges became centers of integration, centers of anti-war protests and liberalism, progressivism in the 1960s. And they really put the kibosh in that very quickly. You know, so there are people who say the reason, reason we won't fund public colleges and universities is because it will drain the incentive from going to these other schools. The same way, by the way, that when we had public high school, the public high school movement, the it, it really hurt all the private high schools. You know, people were happy to take the public institution, and now most people go to public schools. Wait, but I'm losing the train of thought here. I asked you, why is it that we don't have a Medicare for all, given yeah. that it's such yeah. a great thing? So it's the the people who benefit from the privatization of the current system have always lobbied against it. That includes oh, some I medical professionals, and, and that also includes, most importantly, the pharmaceutical industry who profits enormously off of it. Okay, and you were arguing by analogy with yeah, respect sorry. to education in California. Um, what about if I, if you like your doctor, you can keep your doctor. If you like your plan, you can keep your plan. By the way, I like my plan. My, my plan is Blue Cross Blue Shield here at Brown oh, University. Oh, that sounds lovely. That's it what I had lovely. on the campaign, but I don't have it anymore. I have some horrible crappy plan that as I, I have but to I buy like for my myself. Plan. Okay, as I'm a, not talking about your plan. I'm talking about okay, my plan I, and you're taking my plan you, away from you, me. Are you going to pay for me to have Blue Cross Blue Shield? Why? It's not my problem. Okay. Well, see, that's the issue. <laughs> I'm just that's kidding. Issue, I, I don't really mean that. I'm but, pulling your leg. But that's the thing. I'm sitting here before you. Look, I, I could pay and I will be moving to a better plan soon. But the reality is I, I chose a plan, especially I started a podcast just a year and a half ago. I didn't know how well it was going to do. I, I needed to get insurance because the Bernie insurance ended. It, he thankfully gave it as to August uh, to, to October stay. to stay on. He's a minch. But... I had to find something new. I bought the cheapest plan. It has no reproductive health care. It has no mental health care. It's a, not a good plan. Do you know what I mean? And that's, those are the kind of decisions people are making okay, all over the country. I should be willing to give up my plan in order to create a world in which everybody can have a decent plan. A better plan than you ever have, you even have. You think the new plan with Medicare for All will be better than my Blue Cross Blue Shield yeah. plan? Yeah. Mm. Have you ever been between jobs? Have you ever had uh, concerns about lapses? And You're embarrassing me. Not, not since I was 17 years old. Well, that's the thing, Professor. The average American, I think, has 12 jobs over the course of a lifetime. And these are people who have kids and families who are concerned that a lapse in coverage will mean that if their kid gets sick in the interim, pre-existing conditions, all of that, mm-hmm. that used to be, it was a disaster. And if we're talking about freedom and wanting people to be entrepreneurs and all the stuff so many conservatives, I think, are invested in, not wrongly, one of the biggest impediments to starting a business is having to pay insurance for your employees. You wouldn't have to do that anymore. It's having, it's being afraid to leave your current job because you're just staying there for the insurance benefits. You wouldn't have to do that anymore. All these employers who are trying to cut their employees' hours 
and having all these shenanigans and terrible hours that are putting the employee through hell because they don't want them to hit 40 hours a week and then be obliged to pay their insurance. All of that gamesmanship goes out of the window because everybody has health insurance. No, everyone doesn't have health insurance. Everyone has health care, which is better. Okay, so this would be better for everybody. Uh, Vested interests are blocking it from happening. Correct. And the politics of centrism and money is uh, standing in the way of people like Nina Turner getting themselves into Congress and making this happen. Correct. Okay, so we talked about taxes and we didn't agree. We talked about health care and I don't know. I think we kind of agree. I'm listening. (laughs) Uh, Let's talk about uh, free college. Sure. Let's talk about uh, canceling college debt. I'm against that too. Why? People incurred an obligation just like anybody else. They got a benefit for that obligation, which is the, uh, for that obligation, which is the human capital of going mm-hmm. to college, going to professional school and whatever. It is boosting their earnings throughout their lifetime. If I take a mortgage to buy a house, I pay off the mortgage. It's not a uh, reasonable expectation that someone would come along and relieve me of that obligation. Likewise here, um, I think on the whole, I mean, if a person has been defrauded, if a person has been taken advantage of, but if a person has uh, gotten a boost in life by uh, incurring that debt, I think they should uh, be uh, held to that promise. Uh, And I moreover think that the people who actually are going to get the biggest benefit from being relieved of that promise are people who are already doing relatively better than the the median uh, taxpayer. And it's the taxpayer who's going to end up footing the bill. So it's not like there's no free lunch is the the thing I want to say. We can relieve them of their financial obligation, but by socializing it in effect. But someone at, at, at the end of the day is going to have to pay that. And that person is probably not going to be as that person is driving a truck, waiting tables as a you know, midwife somewhere or something like that. All right. Let's start at the top. Besides, if I may just say, and sure. I'll like give you more ammunition to rebut. <laughs> It's a cynical move to appeal to a certain demographic in order to try to construct a majority. I mean, of course, it's going to poll well. Go out and ask people, do you want to repay your debts or don't you? And they're going to say no. What, I don't want what to demographic is that? That's young people. College, well, college people who have debts. So I don't know about you, but my mom has student debt. My aunt has student debt. I had it until I was in my 40s. Okay. Obama have... didn't pay his off until he became a senator and his book started to sell. Okay. Well, we're going uh, to... And the fastest growing population with student debt is seniors. And I forget the number. I'm sorry, I'm not on the campaign anymore with these stats on hand. But uh, an enormous number of social security checks each year are garnished to pay people's student loan debt. It's also the only kind of debt, the only kind of debt that is non-dischargeable through bankruptcy. bankruptcy. So it's not like a mortgage. It's not like other forms of debt. It's worse. And we can thank our president, Joe Biden, from the great state of Delaware, where all of the banks are and centered. People and people didn't willingly incur this debt on behalf of... So that's, that's, that was your first point. Okay. So let's start there. Yeah. You remember the 80s. You remember the 90s. I was there. <laughs> Sadly. <It's the> same. <laughs> you weren't. I not, was. Not the most cognizant <laughs> or savvy, but I was there. And at the time... There was a lot of talk about why some people weren't making it, why black people weren't making it, the, the wealth gap, all of these kinds of things, right? There was crime. We had tough on crime, Bill Biden and all of that stuff happening, trying to address this failure of the social welfare state everyone was very concerned about. What was the narrative, the predominant narrative that I remember growing up? Is that you got to get an education. If you're failing... You got to get an education. I don't know. It was drilled into my head like nothing I, I, I can think of else by comparison. 
You got to go get an education. If you are failing in this world, it's because you didn't go to college. And all I knew in my life was I better get to college. I remember applying to schools. Obviously, I was a pretty good student. But I remember getting my first acceptance letter from a school that was not, it's a great school, but it's not that prestigious. And almost falling to my knees in tears because I thought, oh, thank God, I'm saved from the horrible fate of not going to college and being a a big loser like the world told me I was going to be if I didn't go. Okay. And the narrative was, when it's worth it to take out this debt. It's so worth it to take out this debt, in fact, that the federal government says we're going to back this debt because we know it's a good guarantee. We're going to federally back this debt so any 18-year-old can take out a $150,000 loan, which they would never be allowed to do in any other capacity because the federal government said you have to, do, you should absolutely Wasn't do this. Wasn't that a benefit to people? No, because what, what we have discovered is that the stuff that you said about it incurring a benefit, that it boosts your employment prospects and all of that yeah. is not true for a huge percentage of debtors. A huge percentage of debt. It might be true if you go to Brown and have a certain major, but it's not true of a huge percentage of debtors, especially in this economy and especially in the post-2007 economy, 2008 economy, that you truly happen to have graduated into. Now, this isn't about me. I'm not the sob story. I'm very yeah. lucky in the grand scheme of things. But I want to go back to this question, this issue that you brought up, of it also being like a mortgage in terms, you know, an asset like a mortgage. If I had bought a house with the $180,000 I took out for law school, have I have an asset. And if I fell on hard times, my asset would have appreciated Your because is real not estate. An asset? What am I? Explain Excuse me to for me. <laughs> no, no, no. That's a good question. Explain to me where is it? What can I do with this Harvard degree right now? This law degree? Presumably, you go into the market and you seek a job and you offer the employer the credential and the employer treats you differently than if you didn't have the credential. It's not the appreciating asset you think it is. You don't think a Harvard degree is worth anything? It is. Mine is. My heart, again, it's not about me. My degree is worth a lot. But something like 30% of all um, student debt is held by people who have associate's degrees that are from for-profit colleges where people were sold these horrible commercials about how you're going to have a better life and your income is going to go up and all of this stuff. And especially people in, in our community, I don't know what your family dynamics are like, but I have so many relatives who glow with pride. And I feel so terrible when they tell me about how, oh, I just got my master's. Oh, I got my associate's degree. Oh, I got my this and I got my that. Because they've been told that they're a loser in society because they didn't get those degrees and they've taken tens of thousands of dollars out to get these degrees. And lo and behold, they were lied to. They were induced by some combination of the federal government and these individual is schools. A, it's like a pyramid scheme or it's a fraudulent uh, bad bet and lots people were are. induced into it. People, there are jobs- federal that, <laughs> subsidies and so- Yes, there are jobs out there that pay $30,000 a year that expect you to have a master's degree. That's insane. And moreover, the cost of colleges are as high as they are today because colleges know they can set a sticker price. And because the government is issuing federal debt, they will get paid back. The college is going to get made whole, right? They, it's a, It's a- they're good. Well, the, uh, that's and the a federal, good point. And the government holds the money. So that inflates the price of college. But that's the reason against sub subsidizing these loans in the first yes, place. Yes, it's, it's why instead of subsidizing the loans, the colleges should just be federal So you think way free. too much money has gone into colleges over the last 30 or 40 years. That the yes. higher education sector is, is uh, bloated and inflated. Yes, we should have just had the government spending that money on making free public institutions for people to go to like they used to back in the day. Um, one other point about the... Um, yeah. The, uh, there was something that you were saying about the, the federally backed nature of it. Oh, who pays for it? The tax, this is, this yeah. is a really important point. P 
People say this all the time, that it's some working class person who's going to have to pay for it. Exactly. For one, I want to make really clear. If you are affluent, you did not take out loans. The interest rate for loans, unlike mortgages, because there's a lot of lobbying because rich people buy houses to keep mortgage rates low. The interest rates for student debt around the time I was graduating from college and law school was 8%. My loans are at 8% average. One's 8.5, one's 7.5. That's high. It is high. You know what that means for someone like me? And again, I'm not the test case. I'm just speaking from personal experience. My first year paying my loans out of law school, my $180,000 worth of debt, I paid $18,000 in interest and $5,000 in principal. I was very lucky to have a job where I could burn $18,000. But I, I'm not affluent. And my, my affluent co- peers, by the way, who went to Harvard Law School, they get to pay $180,000 for the same degree that I have, and I'm going to have to pay $250,000 for that I'm degree. I'm not saying that the student who is indebted, or the former student who is indebted, is uh, better off than the one who is not indebted. I'm saying the student who is indebted is better off than the average taxpayer who is a high school graduate. So that is, that is partially true, but partially isn't. So I would say there are a lot of different kinds of debt that I personally would prioritize canceling if I were president of the United States. Before I'm, college debt. Yeah, absolutely. I would probably start with medical debt, which is only what's higher now. But before the pandemic, it was $81 billion. And I sat there and I watched a bunch of leftists like Elizabeth Warren vote for Donald Trump to increase his military budget by $81,000. And I, all I could think to myself was, oh my God, for the amount of money they're about to spend giving contracts to Raytheon, we could have canceled all medical debt in this country. These are policy choices that people are making every single day. So if it were up to me, yeah, I 100% wouldn't prioritize student debt. But here's the thing about student debt, and this is the last really important point. It's federally held debt. So when we say cancellation, no one's going to have to pay for it. This isn't tax dollars. It's not, I'm collecting from Joe the plumber and I'm giving it to... Cynthia, the, the English major. so to speak. It's, it's a, if I lent you $10 and you were just like, Brianna, we're good. Don't pay me back. It's not, you don't have to like pay that off. You've just decided that you're not gonna look for that money back. And that's the fact, because it's federally held debt. Right now, the debt has been in abeyance for two years now, right? The government hasn't collapsed. The government doesn't need those, those payments. It's, it's pro- the government has profit off of student debt for a while, but it doesn't need those payments. And frankly, a huge percentage, and I wish my friend Sparky Abraham, who's so good at talking about these things, he's a a debt attorney. A huge percentage, I want to say a majority of outstanding debt is in non-payment. Even, I mean, I don't mean because of the moratorium. I mean, because people aren't paying the debt back because they don't have money. It's not like, oh, I'm a doctor and I'm making $500,000 a year and I just don't want to pay my student debt. No, if people aren't paying, their wages are garnished. Their social security checks are garnished. Something tells me, I'm not a finance expert, but something tells me somewhere that there are financial obligations, the value of which would be significantly diminished by the canceling of this debt. It's not. Student loan servicers are lobbying hard because they're out. There's a whole for-profit industry that's sprung up around this stuff and they'll lose money. But we shouldn't be designing our... There's nobody holding a bond somewhere who, who is expecting to get paid. You're the saying federal it's, government. You know. It's federally backed loans. They got themselves in the situation. It's not taxpayer debt. It's, they just cancel it. Money's not, you okay, know, this. I'm, it's I'm not real. I'm going to look into that because I'm, I'm... Okay, we've been talking about domestic policy and, yeah. and you've been getting the better of me, Brianna, I must say. She is a passionate <laughs> defender of the progressive of domestic like vision. No, I want to talk about foreign policy right quick. <laughs> Where is the left? Mm-hmm. And correct me if I'm wrong, I haven't heard enough of it. I've heard Chris Hedges. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, I've I've heard uh, Matt Taibbi, mm-hmm. and he I don't know if you call him left, and I've heard uh, Glenn Greenwald. I think he's left, warning us about the stampede to war mm-hmm. uh, that I see going on, which will of course boost Raytheon uh, revenues substantially because they are going to provide munitions. Uh, the stampede to war that I see, the drumbeat, uh, everybody get on the side of let's go to war when we're talking about nuclear power, et cetera. Now I feel a little bit bashful even saying this. Because we all know that, quote, genocide, close quote, isn't that what President Biden said just the other day is proceeding in Ukraine, the Russian attack on Ukraine, et cetera, et cetera. If you have anything to say that is contrary to the, you know, no-fly zones and all right. the armaments, et cetera. You and, and, and I just, you know, have the feeling that a lot of people are keeping quiet about this and are afraid to stick their heads up out of the foxhole because they don't want to be called traitors and they don't want to get... Uh, maligned and and slandered in the public sphere. Yeah, I think that's true. I think that's true. And it's unfortunate. I think most of the left, another area where I think the left and the kind of Tucker Carlson, right, really actually align. One side point, it's kind of, it's very interesting to me. Oh, by the way, excuse me for interrupting, but I got my wife to listen to a Tucker Carlson outtake on YouTube the other day. What did she think? Uh, because he was right he, about uh, the drumbeat for war and, yeah, uh, you know, your yeah. sons and daughters are not going to go and die in that war, et cetera, et yeah. cetera. And, yeah. yeah, well, what's interesting about Fox is that you can get two different views on that on Fox. You can turn on Fox and you can get Tucker Carlson saying war is bad, let's not intervene. And you can get Sean Hannity saying we absolutely have this moral right to go and help Ukrainians and we'll, it will do whatever it takes yeah. and all that, which I think makes it a more dynamic network, to be honest. Um, but... Uh, yeah, the one of the things that the left and the right, that sector of the right have in common is non-interventionism. And a question I've been asking repeatedly on my show of a number of guests who do not all agree with me. Uh, I People were very frustrated with the stance of Bernie's foreign policy advisor, for instance, when he came on my show because they felt like he was too unwilling to reflect on the foreign policy decisions made by the West, the United States, and NATO in terms of pursuing NATO expansion when they had agreed previously not to do so, and then also ignored Putin's repeated warnings that they were inching and inching closer to a required conflict because there was a line in the sand. And acknowledging that history, that's not to say anyone is justified in an invasion or justified in any kind of killing. I, I am against interventionism. When we do it, I'm intervention, against interventionism when um, Putin does it, an invasion when Putin does it. But to not want to look at all of the historical context of what led us there and pretend that this is just the rabid, crazy actions of a, of a lone wolf also means that we're not going to be in the right mindset to resolve a conflict. And a question that I've been asking folks is even if you have a sincere and deeply held empathy for what the people of Ukraine are going through, which I think is right in a natural humanitarian response, are you going to take a beat and inquire and like, Think about whether or not America should continue to play the role of the world's policeman. If you think someone should do something, what is the next step of deciding that it's America who should be doing it? And what is our obligation to that country versus various other countries in the world where atrocities happen on an ongoing basis? Uh, You know, if we're worried about lives lost, then let's look at the, um, you know, starving children in Yemen or whatever atrocity you want to pick out of a hat and say, if we want to spend money keeping people alive, why this and not that? And it comes becomes very clear very quickly that this isn't about you know, humanitarian intervention. This is fundamentally about 
protecting what is perceived to be our national interest in a political response. And at very least, we should be talking about it clearly in those terms instead of pretending that, it, that it's about women and children and atrocities and all of those kinds of things. And you're right, it is very difficult to have those conversations without being accused of having some sympathy with Russia. And I think what people on the left say is my obligation is not to wait, you know, my obligation as an American is to weigh in on what America is doing. I have no control over what Putin is doing. And to the extent that I have a political critique that I want to be carried out in potentially electoral terms, I want people to vote a certain way based on how our president is behaving in in the moment and what he's ethically, um, what he should be doing ethically. Well, then I want to critique America. My critique of Putin doesn't do anything. And so a lot of leftists are being accused of being Putin's puppet. I've had Abby Martin, whose RT show was canceled with the rest of the RT sweep on the show. I've had Chris, Chris Hedges on recently. His show on contact on RT was canceled. I've had um, Max Blumenthal on the show um, to talk about, well, I interviewed Rokana, who Max Blumenthal, a journalist, confronted about his statements on Ukraine, which sounded very jingoistic and not at all like what you would expect of a leftist, especially a leftist like Representative Kana, who has a strong record on kind of progressive foreign policy. Uh, and I interviewed Roe about it and I found his answers to be lacking in all candor. Um, and people really enjoy that interview because it's fairly infrequent that you have an independent member of the press who was, has access to a politician like that. And kudos to Roe for coming on the show and submitting How'd you to get that. Him on? Ro, Ro Khanna is one of the only people in Congress who will submit to an interview in left media. Sometimes I don't know why he does it because he doesn't always yeah, come contacted off well. his office or something? I or? just, I mean, I DM'd him. That's how I get all my guests. I just DM them. I mean, he was a co-chair of the Bernie campaign. Uh-huh. You know, we didn't, you know, I only maybe saw him in person a couple what times is, during the campaign. Me, what is Senator Sanders saying publicly about the Ukraine crisis? My understanding is that he basically has said more or less what his policy advisor has said. Um, so not as far as what the left generally has been saying, which is to really try to share some blame and responsibility with America's own regime changing efforts in the country uh, around the Maidan coup. Uh, I, don't, I don't know that he said anything about that. I haven't really been tracking his statements that closely, but I presume they're fairly aligned with his foreign policy advisor who acknowledged that history, but was also really kind of reluctant to talk very much about the relevance of there being this Nazi minority influence in the army and, you know, kind of adopted what some of my listeners described as State Department talking points. <laughs> you know how listeners are, you know, they don't uh, pull punches. But yeah, it, it, it's, a, it's a toxic time. It's getting less toxic, I think, though, as time passes and people are more comfortable speaking out. Okay. Well, this has been an hour, a scintillating hour of uh, correction and rebuke uh, <laughs> for my reactionary politics, and I'm, I've learned from it. Uh, I've been with Brianna Joy Gray. Uh, it's been a pleasure. It uh, really we'll, has been. We'll have another conversation sometime soon. How about that? I'm looking forward to it. Okay. Thank you, Brianna. Thank you, Professor.